Good morning. Like everyone said, like Matt said, my name is Tiffany. I'm on staff here at Martha Bowman. Many of y'all might have seen me as you're walking in on different Sundays, um, but a lot of you haven't seen my face or had a conversation with me. Um, but I just want to say good morning. And um, a few weeks ago, we kicked off our But God series, talking about those moments where God steps in and changes the entire outcome. So when Mark and Fran came to me and called me and they said, hey, Tiffany, we want you to jump in on a Sunday. I said, okay, great. Um, and they told me it was this opportunity to share a little bit of what has been on my heart and also to share a little bit of what my story is since many of you are just getting to know me um, or you don't have youth, so you haven't really had much interaction with me. So to give you a little bit of backstory, the first time I ever stood in front of a church and preached um, was my senior year of high school on a youth Sunday. And I had this small group leader. He came up to me and he told me, you know, Tiffany, I don't care what you're going to talk about, but if you need to talk about something, the most important thing you need to talk about is Jesus. If you talk about Jesus, you'll be good. Well, this morning we're continuing our But God series, and we're going to talk about Jesus, but we're going to start with another friend whose name also starts with J. That's right, we're talking about our friend Joseph and the community around him. So Joseph, to catch y'all up, Joseph was one of the sons of Jacob, and it's safe to say he was Jacob's favorite. Maybe when you hear the name Joseph, you're like me, and you think of this coat of many colors that his dad gave him. Joseph's dad, Jacob, gave him this jacket full of many colors, and it made his siblings jealous. Then, to make things even worse, Joseph kept having these dreams where his siblings bowed down to him. The brothers, when they heard this, like many siblings, you know, they were jealous. They didn't like it, and they decided that they had had enough of Joseph. They wanted him gone, and so first they had this plan to throw him in a pit, and, but because none of the brothers thought it was like a super great idea, um, they thought through some different options that they had. And at the same time, a group of slave traders come by, and they decide to sell Joseph into slavery. Now, I don't know about you, um, I grew up in a house with brothers, not 11 of them, but two, and throughout my childhood, being the youngest, they put me in some interesting situations. Um, it was, you know, eating things that they had mixed together and didn't tell me what was in it, or maybe playing hide-and-go-seek where they didn't tell me the game was over, but they were standing in front of the door where I was hiding, so I couldn't get out. But none of those situations did my siblings want to sell me into slavery or throw me into a pit. So we see that Joseph has this predicament. He gets sold into slavery, and his entire environment changed. He found himself in Egypt, where he was now a slave working for Potiphar, who was an officer of Pharaoh. And in this new and probably not ideal environment, Joseph still had God's favor. Fast forward a couple of weeks, and Potiphar's wife, she puts Joseph in this predicament, and so much that Joseph found himself now in an Egyptian prison, again, without his family, without his friends, without the usual comforts of life that he had come to know. And so we've got this thing, he's lost everything. Everything has been taken from Joseph, but he still is clinging on to these dreams that God had interpreted and God had worked through. In prison, Joseph made friends with a baker and a butler who had worked for Pharaoh. And while they're there, they had these weird dreams. So Joseph interprets those dreams. 
And maybe this is starting to sound a little bit familiar to you. Um, one day, Pharaoh had some dreams of his own that no one could interpret. No one knew what was going on. And so the people called Joseph because they had heard rumors from prison. In short, Pharaoh's dreams predicted seven years of plenty for the kingdom, where they had enough to grow and eat and live bountifully. But then it also predicted seven years of famine, where the kingdom would suffer. And because Pharaoh believed Joseph's interpretation and his advice and understood what God had intended with his dreams, he was able to save many lives from starvation. Throughout growing this bond with Pharaoh, Joseph found himself rising to a position of power within the kingdom. He had started from prison, and he was building this relationship. So now he found himself, you know, working within the years of plenty and the years of famine. Within the years of plenty, Joseph had become a governor, managing the storehouses where they're collecting all the excess grain, saving it up for these years of famine that they knew were sure to come. Um, within the years of the famine, he was the manager of the storehouses, so he was responsible for selling the grain to different people. He was responsible for making sure that the people got fed. And so we see his siblings that he hasn't talked to in a while. Eventually, they're hungry. They need grain, so they show up at the storehouses. They didn't realize it was Joseph because it had been so many years apart. And they're looking to buy grain so they can support their family. There are more details than I'm going to go into, but Joseph and his siblings, they eventually they reconnected. And when Joseph reconnects with his brothers, he not only reconnects with them, with his family, but he also reconnects with Jacob, his dad. And so we see this great family reunion happening in Egypt. And Egypt is still experiencing this giant seven-year famine where people are struggling to keep their cattle alive, their crops alive. Everything was in a predicament. And so Joseph, who's now the governor of Egypt, working through the storehouses and the excess grain and all of Pharaoh's fields, um, he's been responsible for keeping people alive, for keeping people fed, and keeping the land sustainable so eventually they could plant again to have more crops. Joseph's situation came from an uncertain, messy situation, and, and now he has so many lives depending on him. And I think as Jacob says best, as he's blessing his sons, Jacob says, Joseph is a fruitful vine near a spring whose branches climb over a wall. With bitterness, archers attacked him. They shot at him with this hostility, but his bow remained steady and his strong arms stayed limber because of the hand of the mighty one of Jacob, because of the shepherd, the rock of Israel." Joseph had gone through so much with his environment changing, his family abandoning him, his friends forgetting him, that it'd be easy to stray for what God had intended to do with Joseph's life. Of all of the many emotions that I could see Joseph feeling, I think he would be feeling lonely, maybe a little angry, frustrated with his siblings, betrayed, upset. With this new responsibility, maybe he was a little bit stressed out. But throughout the story of Joseph and throughout Scripture, we see this idea over and over again. We read, we hear, the Lord was with Joseph. Sold into slavery, the Lord was with Joseph. In an Egyptian prison, the Lord was with Joseph. Serving the land and people with great responsibility, the Lord was with Joseph. 
throughout everything Joseph went through, he saw the overarching hand of God in his life. He knew this truth that God was with him. Joseph knew it through every situation he experienced. After Jacob, Joseph's father, had passed, Joseph's siblings, like many siblings, are worried about, you know, you hit one, the other's going to hit back. They worry about that retribution. Um, Joseph's siblings were similar to how we all experience with siblings, so much that Joseph's brothers sent messengers that saying that his own dad, that Jacob, had wanted to tell Joseph that he needed to forgive his brothers. And so that brings us to our scripture today from Genesis. It says, So they sent word to Joseph, saying, Your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. When their message came to him, Joseph wept. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. When Joseph is talking with his brothers, he doesn't ignore the pain or the situation they have placed him in. He doesn't say, oh, it's just fine. He says that, yes, you put me in a situation. It wasn't great. He tells them that they did him wrong, that they intended to hurt him. But he keeps going. He doesn't just stop there. Joseph understands the significance that those situations have played in shaping his own life and the lives of others. God intended those situations for good. Joseph saw the hand of God at work in his own life, knowing that no matter what an evil person, his siblings, prisoners, Pharaoh, all the different situations of famine brought against him, God was going to use that moment, that evil, for good. Now, I don't know about y'all, but when I hear this text, I think of something from the New Testament. I think of Romans 8.28. Romans 8.28 says, And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, and who have been called according to his purpose. Now, you might be thinking, Tiffany, that's from the New Testament. This is Old Testament. There's a large chance that Joseph did not have this text back then. No, the scripture comes from Paul's letter to the Romans and is in the New Testament, and it wasn't around during Joseph's life. But the same sentiment is still there. The same truth is still there. Joseph held on to the truth that God meant it for good. In all things, God works for good. The good that we see in Joseph's story is what I would say is an immediate good. Joseph knows that his but God moment is one where lives are saved and forever changed. Don't believe it? I suggest you might want to buckle up for this. Um, If Joseph hadn't been his father's favorite, then his siblings wouldn't have sold him into slavery. If he wasn't sold, Joseph would have never found himself in Egypt. If Joseph never goes to Egypt, he's never sold to Potiphar. And if he's never sold to Potiphar, Potiphar's wife wouldn't have put him in this predicament where he's falsely accused. If Potiphar's wife never falsely accuses him, then he never ends up in prison. And if he's never put in prison, then he never meets the baker and the butler of Pharaoh. If he never meets those two, then he never comes to serve Pharaoh and interpret Pharaoh's dreams. 
If he never interprets the dream of Pharaoh, he never gets made governor of all the storehouses. He doesn't get to have that, you know, responsibility for the grain. If Joseph is never made the administrator over the grain, then there's no way that he could have taken care of the severe famine. If he never took care of the severe famine, his entire family would have probably perished. They would have struggled. And if his family perished, the family of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, then the Messiah can't come forth from a dead family. If the Messiah can't come forth from the son of David, the son of Abraham, the son of Isaac, the son of Jacob, then Jesus, Jesus would have never come. If Jesus never came, then you and I were dead in our sins and without hope in this world. But... But here's where God steps in. Because of God's intentionality and ability to make good, God crafted this beauty from ashes to save the lives of you and me. And so God creates this goodness from a situation that you would think has no connection. You'd say, that's just one bad thing after another, after another, after another. But God, he sees those situations that we think are lost causes. He sees what he can shape and turn them into something beautiful. He sees those pivotal moments in our story where our only hope is for God himself to intervene. So when our only hope was for God to interject himself in our story. When I think of my own but God moments, I think of the moments where I thought it was just a hopeless situation. There was no way there could be good coming from this. And the moments that led me to being here on this stage speaking to you. I think about my college experience and the journey that God took me on. So, growing up, I always played sports. Um, I was spring and fall, where softball season, and winter, summer, and a little bit year-round, um, I was showing horses. They were big horse show seasons. So, growing up, my community were those different teams, those different barn families. And so, when I came to college, that was the first time I wasn't playing sports, and I was kind of struggling to find community. Well, the coolest thing about college is that there is this community opportunity um, called Greek Life. So I decided to go through Greek recruitment. And I f was looking to find this thing that I had never had before. Remember I said I grew up in a house full of brothers? I was so excited to go through recruitment and hopefully be welcomed home to a house full of sisters, which is crazy to think about. Well, long story short, I went Greek, I found some decent friends, and I dove into our Greek community so well that within a year I had a leadership position and served my chapter as our social coordinator. Well, throughout all of this, throughout coming to college, getting involved with Greek life, I had schedule conflicts with the college ministry I knew I wanted to be a part of. And that and my sisters that, you know, I loved and cherished and had built these relationships with, they weren't exactly too active with ministry either. So I started spending more and more of my time away from college ministry, away from my studies, planning for the next big social event, and really living into the Greek culture. Well, two years in, I find myself in a predicament. My grades had dropped significantly, and I was a step away from academic probation and losing my scholarships. Um, I was studying Christianity, studying religion, but I honestly hadn't set foot in a church probably since the last Christmas. And I hadn't been a part of that campus ministry either. I then, all of a sudden, on top of that, I found myself in a situation where those closest to me and my Greek community and my Greek organization had betrayed me. They had destroyed my friendship, tarnished my reputation, and created a chaotic situation. 
I lost my friends, my housing situation for the following school year, and ultimately what I felt was a giant part of my college identity. After this period of just being lost and finding, you know, I don't know who I am, I was struggling to fit in, I decided that that following fall semester when I came back, moved back to campus, that I was going to try my hardest to get plugged back in at the college ministry that I wanted to be a part of from the start. So I decided to get plugged back into Wesley, and it was kind of weird. I was worried about being a third-year student, a junior, getting plugged in when a lot of people had gone through Wesley for all four years, and they had those tight-knit community that had grown and had challenged their spirituality. Well, I, like I did for, with Greek life, I jumped into a student leadership position, and within a few months, I was planning fun events. My personal favorite was working with our first-year students, our freshmen, um, with Freshly, the campus ministry that ministers to those first-year students. When I got plugged back in, I had no clue what I would find, but I started finding my place back where I knew God had been calling me, back in a ministry setting. And then came this big question, so I'm in my junior year, and came this question was, what happens after college? You know, you're just getting comfortable, but what's next? So I was riding with um, one of the Wesley staff members up to a retreat for a retreat weekend, and she asked that exact tough question. I knew I wanted to go into youth ministry or student ministry, and, you know, I didn't know exactly where to get started. I didn't know how to get plugged in, but I knew that that was my goal. That was my identity. And I knew I wanted to maybe stay near Macon. I had friends here. I didn't know what that would look like. Not even three days later, after we had come back from that retreat, did I get a text from her. She said, hey, there's this position. It's part-time. They think that a college student would be a great fit to get plugged in, to start off, to dive into that youth ministry. Well, that position turned out to be my first position in youth ministry. And that part-time position, I worked and learned through my senior year of college and first year post-grad. And it guided and shaped my life to where I am today. I believe that God stepped in in that Greek situation where I didn't find that community where I thought I was comfortable and changed it to redirect my life to that path that I needed to be on. I firmly believe that God stepped in and he knew that, you know, you need to make those good connections with those people that matter. So here I am. I'm you know, post-graduation, and my life has been shaped by God. I'm on staff here at Martha, ministering and impacting the lives of our students through conversation, games, all of the crazy meals and fun things that we get to do. You see, I thought those moments where I was losing Greek life and the time that I had dedicated, it was just gone. It was time I couldn't get back. But God intended those moments for good. God intended to use those situations to grow his kingdom. Like Joseph, had I not gone through that journey, there's a chance I wouldn't be who I am today and who God needs, to be, needs me to be as I serve and glorify his kingdom, as I talk with our students, with our parents, our adults, our college kids. And so because of God's intentionality and God's ability to make good, God crafted this beauty from ashes to save lives. We see how Joseph's beauty from ashes story saved the lives of so many, even generations that we couldn't even think would come. But God creates goodness in our own situations, where he is our only hope. In the messy friendships, the relationships, the job situations, maybe even housing situations, where it just seems like there's no way goodness can come from it. God is using those tricky moments, those moments where we feel things change, those moments where we need God to step in. Those are the moments where he does exactly that. 
Those are the pivotal moments that God intends for good. Those moments make us who we are, and those moments shape his kingdom. God intends to turn our mess into glory. We just have this job of letting him step in.